You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining this event at the United States Institute of Peace. Today, we will hold a conversation on progress made by the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, the IIIM, towards fostering accountability for crimes committed in Syria and on the challenges facing the international community in delivering justice to Syrians affected by the war. My name is Michael Yaffe. I am the Vice President for the Middle East North Africa Center here at USIP. And I want to extend a warm welcome to U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice, Beth Van Schack, Triple M Head, Katerine Marquis-Uhel, and Syrian Justice and Accountability Center Director, Mohammed Ab Abdullah, and thank them for joining us today. I also want to thank Monin Yakobian, Senior Advisor here at USIP, for moderating the discussion. USIP was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as an independent, nonpartisan national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and resolving conflict without, going to, without becoming violent abroad. USIP recognizes that justice and accountability are essential to American peacebuilding. USIP engages, in policy, engages with policymakers, practitioners, and experts to support effective documentation, investigation, and prosecution of atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanities, and genocide. Throughout the Institute's history, USIP has both led and supported US efforts to prevent and, res and respond to mass atrocities, including co-chairing the 2009 Genocide, Genocide Prevention Task Force, which has provided the broad framework for US atrocity prevention and response policy. Since 2011, USIP has supported building the capacity of Syrian civil society, organizations, and local peace-building initiatives, and convened and informed policy discussions to help resolve the conflict and build peace. This USIP continuously tries to bring attention to the conflict in Syria. This year, the Institute will recognize the work of a woman from Syria as a finalist in the USIP Women's Building Peace Award. The International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, first of, its kind, first of its kind investigative body, has played a critical role collecting and analyzing evidence of crimes in Syria. The IIIM has created strong relationships with civil society documenters and prosecutors as part of its mandate. These relationships have resulted in criminal prosecutions against former Assad regime actors, which are an important step towards, for, which are an important step forward for accountability and the testimony to the conviction of the organizations supporting these processes. The IIIM's work has only become even more essential as parties to the conflict have continued to subject, to be subjected civilians to indiscriminate attacks, unlawful detention, torture, and enforced disappearances. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mona for leading the discussion today. Thank you, Mona. We approach the 12th anniversary of the Syrian uprising this coming March. Um, 
the Syrian people continue to suffer through unspeakable atrocities at the hands of the Assad's regime with unfortunately little to show with respect to uh, justice and accountability. Today's discussion of the IIIM's role as a justice facilitator and how the US and civil society can help deliver justice for Syrians is therefore incredibly important, particularly as Syria has uh, disappeared a bit from the headlines of the news that in no way diminishes the severity of the, of the challenge. Let me begin by introducing our speakers. Sitting in the center, Ambassador Beth Van Skak was sworn in as US Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice this past March. She advises the Secretary of State and other department leadership on issues related to the prevention of and response to atrocity crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Ambassador Von Skak was previously the Leah Kaplan Visiting Professor in Human Rights at Stanford Law School, where she directed Stanford's International Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Clinic. She previously taught international human rights at the Santa Clara University School of Law and served as the academic advisor to the US interagency delegation to the ICC Review Conference in Kampala, Uganda. Since 20, 2017, Catherine Marquis-Uel has served as the head of the, the first head of the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism to assist in the investigation and prosecution of persons responsible for the most serious crimes under international law committed in the Syrian Arab Republic since March of 2011, the IIIM. Prior to her current position, Ms. Marquis-Uel was the ombudsperson for the Security Council Committee concerning the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, Al-Qaeda, and associated individuals, groups, and entities. Mohammed Al-Abdallah is the founding director of the Syria Justice and Accountability Center, or SJAC, where he develops and leads the organization's strategic vision and supports project implementation. At SJAC, Mohammed is involved in transitional justice projects and the missing persons portfolio. He received his Bachelor of Law from Lebanese University and his Master of Public Policy from George Mason University. He is also a former prisoner and survivor of torture who was imprisoned in Syria on two separate occasions for his work defending human rights and lobbying for political reform. Let me extend our gratitude once again to this very distinguished panel uh, to join us here today uh, and discuss this important topic. Mohammed, I want to start with you first, if I could. Uh, because Syria has sort of come down out of the uh, headlines a bit, help us understand uh, about accountability efforts for Syrians. Where do they currently stand? What are the needs and the interests of the Syrian people in pursuing accountability for the crimes that they've suffered, and perhaps even enlighten us on the scope and the magnitude of the challenge in Syria. Sure, thank you very much for, for having me here, and uh, it's really a pleasure and honor to be in USIP. Thanks for USIP for hosting this important discussion, and so honestly, pleasure and honor to be with two amazing women champions and justice and accountability efforts, whom we worked closely and partnered in, in several uh, areas of our work. 
I'll start from your exact correct point, Mona, of that the Syria conflict and accountability has no longer become in the headlines. It's not a topic, unfortunately, for a lot of governments, a lot of capitals. It's not a priority, clearly. Uh, for uh, the current administration in the U.S., politically, there is no special envoy appointed for Syria, and this is something doesn't seem to be uh, an area of urgency. Part of that is also because since the global ceasefire resolution passed during COVID at the UN, um, kind of the fighting lines have stalled and stayed in place in Syria. There's no active bombardment and killing in the way we've seen before in Syria. But let's take back a couple of years and backward and see how, how this all developed from peaceful protesting, government shooting in people, people picking up arms to defend themselves, Quickly, the country slips to uh, an armed conflict, and quickly, neighboring countries start intervening. Uh, Iran starts sending Shia militias and fighters. Hezbollah start deploying their forces in Syria. Shia militias from Iraq were deployed to Syria. Uh, although they couldn't tip the balance because Turkey, the Gulfies, also start pouring arms in Syria and supporting the uprising. And quickly, Russia ended up militarily involved in Syria in September 2015, and that tipped the balance militarily quite quite off because it's a massive military using air forces primarily as a weapon and fighting against armed groups and militias who are not really organized well or equipped. And there's a million other issues with, with the armed movement in Syria. But if we look at the accountability sphere, but also look at the severity and the gravity of the crimes committed from shooting at protesters, peaceful protesters from the beginning to all the way when things become armed movement, indiscriminate shelling and bombardment of town by town, village by village, city by city that rebelled against the Syrian government. And that systematic effort was led by the Syrian government using well-known indiscriminate weapons, including barrel bombs, just pushing a barrel with lots of TNT and lots of sharp nails from a helicopter and just lands wherever it wants to land and kill a lot of people. Uh, barrel bombs specifically were responsible for displacement and destruction of big, big number of cities and towns. Um, and then all the way to the Russian involvement where more targeted missiles, more precise and advanced weaponry and air systems were used to do the exact same thing, to dis deliberately basically uh, bomb civilians and cause terror in the communities and cause a massive movement of population, which also Turkey sponsored through uh, negotiation with the UN. And they, they labeled that as a passive safe corridors for civilians to be evacuated, but also it was eventually called out by the UN Commission of Inquiry from Geneva as forced population transfer. And that sad reality, the sad reality that the Security Council sponsored some of those resolutions in New York, and the UN in Geneva called them out on it and told them, you contributed to crime against the humanity. Looking at the accountability efforts is not, is not really something um, Easy because Syria is not member state of the uh, Rome Statute, so the ICC could not practice jurisdiction uh, over the crimes committed in Syria. Um, the Syrian government doesn't have a great track record or trust or even credibility to open its own investigations inside Syria and have any domestic procedures, although Assad announced starting a commission of inquiry at the beginning of 2012. Didn't lead anywhere, kind of disappeared. Nobody followed the news of that. And the number of people killed under torture was exposed in the Caesar photos was astonishing. How many people ended up in detention facilities, the systematic way of killing them, the systematic way of torturing people, and also the systematic way of moving dead bodies to be buried uh, elsewhere. So this all uh, combined with the mass influx of refugees who ended up crossing um, 
the sea and landing in Europe opened a new opportunity for, for everybody, which is trying to follow those war criminals at national and domestic jurisdictions in Europe in several countries, relying on a very non-principle uh, uh, called the universal jurisdiction, which allowed lots of states to practice jurisdiction, a lot of courts in Europe to practice jurisdiction over crimes where not their nationals involved in committing, they were not the victims or not even committed in the soil of these countries. Of course, universal jurisdiction changed quite a bit during the last 20 years, partly also because the US pressured Europe to trim the universal jurisdiction during the Afghanistan war and the CIA torture program, but now it's re-expanded in the last couple of years, with Germany seems to be one of the most expanded universal jurisdiction scopes that's allowed to, pros to prosecute a couple of Syrian war criminals who landed among the refugees who ended up in, in Germany. So quickly at the universal jurisdiction, there's a couple of pros and cons here. It allowed, uh, and we've seen a couple of cases. The most notable one was the Koblenz trial where a former colonel in the intelligence appeared before court in Germany and had a life prison term in Germany for uh, contributing or for, for actually uh, committing the crimes of torture and disappearing people. But universal jurisdiction is, is limited in a couple of ways. The more limitation, the most important limitation is the limitation on um, uh, diplomatic Im immunities, like you cannot limitation on prosecuting heads of states. You cannot prosecute heads of states at a national court in another country, simply that's how it is. And the second thing is the limitation to put people in trial where they're not on the soil of that country. So you cannot, you can issue arrest warrants and send it to the Interpol, and this is what Germany did with the three heads of, or leaders of the security agencies in Syria, but there's no trials in abstention here. You have to wait to arrest those people. And putting the information all together, those people are in sanctions list. They do not travel to Europe to start with, less likely to land in European soil and be able to, uh, to be captured and prosecuted. The heavily bombardment, and stop me, Mona, whatever you want. Uh, um, the heavy bombardment in Aleppo and the lack of hope, actually. Nobody was able to, to do anything. A double veto on the attempt to refer the situation in Syria to the Security Council by Russia and China who vetoed the resolution. And this is even before Russia joined the conflict militarily. So Russia is much more inclined to veto now because they committed war crimes and they participated in those violations. So we ended up in going to something more innovative, the first of its kind, establishing the IIIM. Member states at the UN who felt handcuffed by the Russian and Chinese vetoed wanted to do something outside of the Security Council where both member states cannot veto and hence went to the General Assembly to create something more innovative, which is, if I want to describe it in, in one term, it's a prosecutor office without a tribunal. What the work, the work Catherine is doing with her team is documenting and building up cases and putting dossiers forward and conducting structural investigations on crimes committed in Syria, but without yet clarity to where these cases would go. Clearly, there is a utility of those cases at the universal jurisdiction cases in European, on which you will speak at. But uh, um, there's also a big question about prosecuting heads of states, prosecuting the most responsible people in Syria, which is, doesn't seem to happen at the current status quo politically and also because of the uh, national legislations in European countries. I'll end in two comments here that we've been seeing more and more openness from the US legislators about universal jurisdiction, specifically during Ukraine, because now we understand we could actually prosecute Russian officials elsewhere, even if they not actually committed the crimes in the US or they were dual citizens. There's a couple of proposals in Congress and there's lots of debates publicly about it. This is something I know Ambassador Vashak is most likely will comment on, but this is something we would love to see the US moving to the same direction of other people. There's current 
U.S. extraterritorial jurisdiction related to trafficking and persons to torture, but I know you will speak, speak probably on this. And the, the second uh, element is that the strategic litigation became a big thing in the work of the civil society where they jumped to this sphere to file cases. Sometimes those cases does not have a direct um, legal impact of putting anybody behind bars, but more moving the debate and opening the discussion of the media and the civil society and some crimes. There's certain cases to go to European Court for Human Rights, although it's not criminal cases here. We're talking about civil cases. And that's to um, hold countries like Russia, who was member to the, state, uh, the Council of Europe, or even Turkey, for some violations committed. Uh, while there's no ICC jurisdiction. There's an attempt by Netherlands and Canada to go to the International Court of Justice um, to, um, for um, a case against the Syrian government for having violating their commitment and obligations under the Convention Against Torture. Um, and, and, and that will end up with advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. Nobody will go to prison, but that will highlight the, 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 the case. Azjak ended up filing a communique with the ICC trying to take Greece to prison, basically, the leadership of Greece for pushbacks of refugees and, and killing lots of Syrian refugees. And that's a case that has not been denied yet by the Office of Prosecutor of the ICC, but has not been accepted. We think it triggered a lot of discussions, including some of the discussion inside Frontex, the European border security agencies, that led eventually to the resignation of the head of Frontex. And just recently, there was an, uh, an, a Guardian expose that tells the internal OLAF the anti-fraud, anti-mechanism um, uh, in the European uh, Commission, who investigated uh, Frontex from inside and told basically and told the stories about their contribution to justice. So, to, to quickly sum it up, we don't have a lot of accountability mechanisms or venues waiting. We have a lot of good efforts by some member states, by civil society, by IIIM, by the Commission of Inquiry, and we have a lot of crimes that remained untouched. Thanks, Mohammed. I think you've laid out a, really, a very important sort of uh, grounding for us to pursue the discussion. Catherine Marquiel, I'd like to turn to you. So the IIIM was established in 2017 in many ways to sort of get at a more creative way of getting to the issues around accountability and justice for Syrians. You've been there since its inception. Can you talk a bit about the progress that the IIIM has had to date in terms of seeking uh, accountability and justice for Syrians? Sure. <clears throat> Mona, you, when you introduced the IIIM earlier, you spoke of its role as a justice facilitator, and that's really, although these are not the terms of the resolution, that's really the spirit of this resolution. Mm -hmm. We've been built, as uh, Mohammed has uh, also explained, uh, to collect um, documentation um, gathered by other entities to, to preserve uh, such documentation, to analyze it, identify gaps, build cases, and talking about progress in this area, the first progress I, I want to highlight is the establishment of a central repository of this uh, huge amount of documentation, which currently in our holdings uh, amounts to 2.3 million records. Um, not every piece of those uh, records will end up into uh, court cases as evidence, but at the minimum, uh, there is a lot of lead information, and there are indeed increasingly amount of material that uh, we are able to channel to, uh, through um, requests for assistance from competent jurisdiction to those cases that uh, Mohammed uh, uh, explained. Uh, build either on the basis of universal jurisdiction or um, 
extended forms uh, of uh, extended form of extraterritorial uh, jurisdiction from cases. Without entering into details, we currently have uh, a cooperation uh, with 15 competent jurisdictions that are coming to us to ask us to search. Uh, to support their investigation, search our central repository, and are asking for an increasing amount of more sophisticated and tailored type of support. So we are, just to give you an idea of the volume, uh, because I think it speaks to, on the one hand, the amount of activism uh, from the prosecutors and judges, but at the same time shows how limited it remains in the face of the amount of crimes alleged in Syria. We uh, have received 229 requests for assistance from this competent jurisdiction, 15 jurisdiction, and this uh, relates to 186 or seven, I believe, um, distinct investigations. We've been able to support already 117 of them. Uh, in 30 cases, we didn't have material to share, and the rest is under uh, work by our team. We have um, uh, investigators, uh, analysts, lawyers, specialists of digital evidence uh, management and preservation. And we are uh, increasingly uh, able to effectively search this uh, huge amount of uh, materials of different kinds. That's what makes it complicated. We're talking, just to give you ideas of what it contains, we're talking um, uh, documents, uh, government documents that have been exfiltrated either by uh, insiders themselves when they leave uh, Syria or by uh, other persons present in Syria when, for instance, during the course of the conflict, uh, certain areas were being uh, uh, falling under the control of another party and it was <coughs> possible to um, to gather and, and exfiltrate materials. Uh, we are talking about Caesar photos. Uh, you may have heard uh, this uh, photographer from uh, um, working in a pathologist uh, uh, part of the military um, who was uh, photographing bodies of mutilated bodies uh, uh, of persons submitted to torture. This material has been uh, exfiltrated, has been made available to uh, a number of uh, prosecutors' entities and ourselves, has been analyzed by German uh, Forensic uh, Institute. The work um, that this uh, institute has done has been translated by the AAAM and with agreement from the German authorities can be made available to other uh, jurisdictions. We're talking about uh, materials consisting of videos taken by uh, a number of uh, activists, but also a number of citizens who have been able to place them on the social media. We're talking about pictures. We're talking about um, propaganda from uh, certain uh, groups, including Daesh. We're talking about internal documents to Daesh. Uh, this group has uh, actually documented and, and, and taken internal decision and, and procedures that are extremely useful when you want to reconstruct and establish uh, uh, responsibility for, for uh, people higher the chain in this, in this group. We're talking about an amount, a variety and amount of materials which are difficult to search effectively. So um, the AAAM has invested in, in uh, systems, but also in personnel, able to facilitate the search, for instance, of um, documents of bad quality. Sometimes we're talking uh, facts that have been 
uh, received and, and uh, trans, uh, transformed in PDF. Sometimes we're talking about how to extract uh, text from videos, uh, mm -hmm. audio material, and all of that can be really assisted with the use of uh, intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence assisted by analysts. We, uh, since you asked me about uh, progress, I think it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be complete if I was limiting myself to the use of the central repository. We've been mandated to build cases, and when I took the, the lead of the AAAM, I was, I was wondering how could we, on the one hand, su uh, support and facilitate justice with those competent jurisdictions that are currently investigating crimes, but also build founding blocks, if you wish, uh, analytical blocks for future prosecution. Mm -hmm. Mohammed has been uh, expressing the wish that uh, all of us have that you know, one day uh, an international court could take either the ACC or any, any other uh, court with competence for the entire Syrian situation could become seized of that. That's not the case, but if we don't build the, the, the steps now, the day this becomes a reality, which we hope, uh, well, then we will have to, a prosecutor will have to start from scratch. It's one thing to make available a central repository of, of documentation like the one I mentioned, and it would certainly be extremely helpful, but if on the top of it, you've advanced your analytical work uh, sufficiently to give a prosecutor a good grasp of you know, the patterns of crimes, uh, all the contextual elements that you need to prove uh, to charge co-international crimes, atrocity crimes. For war crimes, you need to prove the existence of an armed conflict of a certain nature. Uh, for crime against humanity, you need to prove the existence of a um, widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population. And all this type of uh, aspect of the situa situation are things that we have started uh, an advanced analysis of. So with this jurisdiction that I uh, mentioned earlier, we've been able to not only develop, but also share with them uh, 31 analytical work products ranging from briefs to geolocation reports to um, expert reports, um, uh, narrative of, um, of uh, crime patterns in uh, detention facilities, um, organizational uh, description of the functioning of these entities where detainees are being held and tortured or killed. Uh, and all of that is something that on the one hand can immediately be detached to support ongoing investigations and at the same time build the blocks necessary for the cases that we build but also for uh, a prosecutor that would be seized of the entire situation. So that's mm. progress in this sense and the the last progress in a couple of uh, seconds that I want to mention is how do you get to implement a, pro uh, a project like that, a mandate like that? Well, first of all, you have to really uh, be guided by uh, an approach where, uh, at the center of which are victims and survivors. And you need to engage in a, in a two-way relationship with the many civil society actors that have been uh, documenting these crimes that have been advocating for accountability and that have been uh, liaising with so many sources. So that was an important step and it's also part of the, of the credit I think we, we, we need to give the AAAM for, for this uh, building. So thank you, and that's a really actually quite an impressive record of accomplishment. I want to actually pick up on the last point you made, because it sounds like central to your mission is this coordination with civil society documenters and, and national prosecutors and others. Can you give us a bit more, because it, it sounds like it's got to be complicated. I mean, it's hundreds of different relationships. 
talk a bit about the coordination amongst these different documenters. How does it work? Um, what, are the, what are some of the challenges? Um, what kinds of, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, how to help develop the, the, the skills of some of these organizations as they're working on, these, on this very difficult task of, of documentation. Give us a flavor of what that relationship is like. Sure. So starting with the civil society actors and the documenters, I think the first, it sounds difficult. It's more common sense and willingness than, than and not really difficult, but what's essential is to build the trust. It's to engage and to be uh, prepared to disclose part of the work you do because there is so much lack of information. I mean, we, we've spoken about the investigation, a lot of this work is not public, right? Yep. I think we, to date, we've had, at least I'm aware of um, a little less than 30 persons convicted for atrocity crimes uh, in, in relation to, to uh, crimes committed in Syria. And that's without talking about the number of people, foreign fighters who may have been charged for uh, and, and convicted for uh, uh, participation in uh, uh, terrorist, uh, terrorist uh, groups and activities. But talking about atrocity crimes, that's really uh, the figure we have. So the visibility of the accountability for, for many of the documenters is not there. And that's probably an area where we had this possibility of engaging and explaining the work we do, trying to give feedback when that's possible on the use that we're making uh, of the material that they share with us. Um, that's building the relationship with the courts as well uh, to get permission to share certain information about how much of that has been used in court. And this is a type of feedback that is extremely useful. So we, um, we didn't invent, I didn't invent uh, a formula. In fact, I, was, I inherited a formula uh, that had been developed by the startup team before my, my appointment. And it was uh, a first meeting uh, facilitated by um, Switzerland and, and the Netherlands of uh, a, the person who was heading the startup team at the, at the time, meeting a number of uh, NGOs and explaining what this mandate may permit, uh, giving, exchanging and hearing from the NGOs. And when I started, I was given a, a note that was giving me, uh, you know, kind of a, a main points arising from the discussion. And I thought that's a fantastic opportunity. Let's continue that. Let's build and have regular engagement. And of course, uh, there is a, a certain amount of limitation that you face when you're doing that because you're not going to end up engaging with the broad spectrum of uh, NGOs that are documenting or active on the, on the Syria file. So you need to find other ways, and we developed uh, information built-ins. But this platform that uh, we call our Lausanne platform has really been a, a very helpful uh, way to build the trust, way, way to know each other sufficiently to come to a point where you can start talking about the content of your work, see how um, uh, NGOs can help, filling gaps, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we realized that we needed to supplement that on a, with a two-pronged approach. The first one was how to engage with a broader spectrum of uh, uh, victims and survivor representatives, people who are not involved in documentation, but may uh, need to know 
what's going on for uh, accountability in Syria, may share their perspective, what are their expectations, what they find is not being taken care of, etc., etc. So we decided to uh, add to the Lausanne platform uh, an engagement with victim and survivor representative. We started the first one in June this year, and we will continue. And we also wanted, on the other end of the spectrum, engage more in more sophisticated and more in-depth discussion with entities that are documenting crimes and can help us in the lines of inquiry that we uh, engage in, in filling gaps. And that, are, that is leading to workshops. We'll have the first one in November, and we will continue that. Every year, we'll have those three uh, spectrum. Just a last point, uh, you, you spoke of the engagement with the many uh, competent jurisdictions. Well, fortunately, there is already a, a fora for that kind of engagement, which is called the Genocide Network. That's a short name of the, this um, uh, initiative that has been uh, hosted by Eurojust. It's taking place in the town of The Hague in the Netherlands, and it's meeting twice a year. Uh, it's a gathering of war crimes unit, if you wish, investigators and, and prosecutors, some investigative judges, and entities that are contributing to accountability. There is a, a public version of that, and there is a closed session, and we are um, admitted as participants to, to the closed session when it comes to Syria and Iraq. Uh, Iraq, because that, that's handy uh, with the Daesh group, we uh, actually have certain crimes starting in Iraq, continuing in Syria. And we also have bilateral engagement with the War Crimes Unit. Of course, the Genocide Network is a, is a fantastic uh, forum, but there are things you cannot discuss even in the closed session. So we do that in bilateral discussions. We are receiving war crimes unit in Geneva in our premises so that they can meet with our team, with analysts working on their request. And sometimes we end up those meetings with very concrete ideas of uh, how you can uh, help the case better, uh, what kind of uh, unequal work we can develop next. Uh, and, and that's the way we, we do it. And we also uh, visit those war crimes unit uh, in their own premises. Impressive, it's a lot. Um, ambassador Vanschkak, from your vantage point as ambassador at large for global criminal justice, can you talk a bit about what the US has done to foster uh, accountability uh, for crimes committed against the Syrian people? What's been effective, why, and what are some of the big challenges? Yeah, thank you, Mona, and thanks, everyone, for being here and for USIP for hosting. It's great to be on the dais with two old friends who are doing amazing work. Um, I actually started on this brief when I was deputy in this office. At the very early stages of the Syrian war, I had joined the office, and Secretary Clinton, very early on at one of the meetings of the Friends of the Syrian People that was happening um, to try and mount a sort of international response to what was going on, she announced that we would be supporting a multilateral um, accountability effort. It was sort of vague, it wasn't clear what that looked like. So we got together, hosted a donors conference in Rabat, um, Morocco, and raised a, a pot of money with the idea of launching some sort of an accountability effort. And what came out of that was SJAC. <laughs> and Mohammed ended up um, being the, the lead of that, the executive director of that, which was an inspired choice. Um, that organization was also meant to help to capacitate other civil society actors. And so one of the other organizations that we supported through SJAC and then individually is the Commission on International Justice and Accountability, which, as Katrine mentioned, was an organization that felt comfortable 
using Syrian and other investigators who could cross the border into Syria and exfiltrate um, usually regime documents, but also in the end it ended up being ISIL documents and other documentation. They tended to align themselves with the opposition, so it was somewhat of an unbalanced collection effort, but that was the reality of what enabled them to do that work. And so they were able to bring out um, reams of information that was captured or, or taken um, from battlefields, from prisons, from governmental agencies that had been abandoned, et cetera. So the, the whole ecosystem of civil society actors is there's a broad swath. Many are very victim focused and others are much more law enforcement focused and then groups fall in between and organizations like SJAC operate as a really nice, almost an umbrella organization that can connect some of these different actors, very local to the more international. We also supported the ICC referral um, resolution before the Security Council. This was a French-led effort. Um, it earned a double veto, as was mentioned, by, um, by Russia with uh, China in tow. But that would have referred the entire situation to the ICC. The ICC does not have jurisdiction over the situation in Syria on its own because Syria is not a state party. That's one of the jurisdictional requirements. A Security Council referral could have overridden that requirement, but that was unavailing. There is some residual jurisdiction before the ICC, and you mentioned one of your theories of why the ICC could be able to work. One would be based upon the nationality of perpetrators if they hail from ICC member states. So many of the foreign fighters that came from Europe or elsewhere would fall within ICC jurisdiction, even if they're committing crimes on the territory of a non-state party like Syria. Second, and the, the theory that um, Mohammed was pushing in a way was this idea of effects jurisdiction, that if crimes that are happening on one territory have effects in another territory, that might render jurisdiction there. Here we had the situation of migrants, direct action by Frontex and other actors, potentially contributing to international crimes. We've seen this um, idea of effects jurisdiction in Myanmar, where neighboring Bangladesh is a member of the ICC. Of course, Myanmar, Burma is not. But because so many Rohingya have been forced across that border, part of the crime is being committed on the territory of a non-state party. So looking at places like Jordan, where people have had to flee violence. So there's this kind of residual jurisdiction. So far, the ICC, as, as noted, has been unwilling to move forward, in part potentially based upon their own internal gravity threshold mm -hmm. and the theory that the ICC should be reserved for the sort of most serious crimes and those most responsible. And so not necessarily focusing on very low-level individuals or a tiny slice of the atrocities that are being committed. But there's still efforts afoot to try and engage ICC jurisdiction, and that's really the only international tribunal that possibly exists. There were lots of ideas put forth, including some that we were trying to generate internally to create an ad hoc standalone tribunal that would have jurisdiction over Syria. None of those came to fruition for lack of some political will, but also some concerns about the legitimacy of creating a body of just kind of pooling the jurisdiction of individual states without the imprimatur of the 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 United Nations, for example, or some sort of a regional body, and the Arab League was not willing to pursue this either. So that ended up being a dead end. When it comes to cases in our own system, um, as has been mentioned, our 
international crimes framework is somewhat of a patchwork. We have jurisdiction over the crime of torture, um, if, as so long as the perpetrator is present in the United States or found in the United States. We have jurisdiction over genocide, which may be engaged in some capacity in the Syrian context, but it's a very high standard. There needs to be proof that the perpetrators acted with the intent to destroy a protected group in whole or in part. And so sometimes in civil war situations, it's hard to meet those, um, those criteria. We do not have a crimes against humanity statute, and we do have a war crime statute, but it requires this nationality link. So only if the perpetrator or the victim is a national of the United States do we have war crimes jurisdictions. Now, as Mohammed mentioned, there are a number of initiatives now before Congress, and there was a very important hearing about a week ago before the Judiciary Committee where the DOJ and the DHS both testified about the gaps in our prosecutorial authorities, and these gaps have been really um, salient and obvious when it comes to the Syrian situation. Now, at the same time, we don't have that many perpetrators that have come here. It's not like Europe where perpetrators can hide in refugee flows, they can take on new identities, they can sort of be undercover and they get discovered at the local Arab market or you know, someone recognizes them on the street, these very opportunistic um, sightings, those individuals then contact law enforcement and then that triggers the initiation of an investigation. We have very strong filters that make it difficult for people to come here. Um, and so that has kept many out and they naturally probably wouldn't come here given our strong stance against the Assad regime. Now, when it comes to these universal jurisdiction cases, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, they are episodic, they are opportunistic. Some of the early cases focused on members of the opposition or on ISIS, and so it felt very unbalanced where the primary perpetrator has been the Assad regime itself and its, its agents. Um, and so the UJ cases didn't really match that. But then you had some of these other cases, the Raslan case and others, where it was finally more senior regime figures being prosecuted for their involvement in a system of atrocities, in industrial grade torture, in the commission of war crimes on a systematic basis. And so those, even though they're individual cases, I think they send very broad reverberations around the imperative of justice, potentially sending a deterrent message, um, signaling that the victims have been heard, that their cases are being taken seriously. Um, and this really interesting, we're seeing now public-private partnership between civil society organizations that have legitimacy within diaspora communities that can work with defectors, can work with the survivors, can represent them before legal proceedings, which are often quite alienating and hard to understand if you're in a foreign system. Then you have this multilateral institution that's serving as a clearinghouse, as a justice catalyst, as a source of you know, sharply analytical briefs that can jumpstart domestic processes, and then ordinary you know, domestic law enforcement that are not used to doing these cases. But as Katrine mentioned, you now have these amazing war crimes units increasingly interlinked through the Eurojust genocide network, sharing information, techniques, watching each other, learning from each other. And so particularly in Europe, the revival of universal jurisdiction and the development of genuine state practice is sending the message that these cases can be done, that domestic courts can be a situs for justice. And so I think many of us are hopeful that with some of these judicial or some of these legislative initiatives happening in our own Congress, we can be a, a bigger, play a bigger part within this general system of sort of burden sharing and, and, and being, a, being, being able to be a leader when it comes to this. And much of this has been inspired by the Ukraine situation. Most of these statutes will probably, if they're enacted, will not be retroactive. And so they may not be able to help in this case necessarily, but um, certainly for Ukraine moving forward and then subsequent um, conflicts that may arise. 
So of all these different things that you've laid out, what do you think is the most promising step forward that you know, the US government could be playing? Um, is it, is it at, you know, allocating more resources to these efforts? Is it playing a, more of a catalyzing role, even if a lot of the action is in Europe with respect to documentation? How do you see the U you know, how do you see the U.S.'s role going forward? And I am fascinated. And maybe later we'll circle to it. But the parallels between what we've seen in Ukraine and, of course, Russia <laughs> has a track record that well precedes its its uh, its behavior in Ukraine. We've seen it in in horrible Chechnya, ways in Chechnya and Georgia, yeah, and, and of course Syria. Syria. So we'll maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. But I would love to sort of have you share with us what do you see as the most constructive and promising steps forward for the US? I think there's probably three things we can be doing. Number one is continuing to capacitate really worthy non-governmental organizations, giving them the resources they need to do what they're doing so well in terms of working with survivor communities, in terms of sharing information with law enforcement, in terms of working with defectors to convince them to somehow testify, because sometimes those insiders are the key witness to be able to um, assist. I think we can do more on witness protection. So one of the key witnesses in some of these European proceedings is an individual who goes by the code name the Gravedigger. He's like a Caesar figure who was an insider um, being asked to do horrible things and escaped and now is telling the tale and is participating in many of these justice um, processes. He, however, has been the subject of severe retaliation in Europe. His family has been attacked. Um, he's had to be in, go in hiding. He's had to change housing. They've been homeless for a spell. And so the international community needs to do more on the witness protection front, not just for vulnerable recipient witnesses, but also for those insiders that are taking that courageous step mm -hmm. to give turn states witness and to provide insights into how a system worked, how chain of command worked, who was the most responsible, what orders were given, who knows where literally, in the case of the gravedigger, the bodies are buried. Mm. Um, I think there's more we can do on that front. I think there's probably more we can do on information sharing with our own intelligence services to help our European counterparts bring these cases when they have them. I would love to see us being more supportive in that regard. And then providing diplomatic support for organizations like the IIIM. So originally, they were funded by voluntary contributions. That's not a way to, to create a sustainable institution where you would have had to spend you know, a good chunk of your time with your hat in your hand looking for um, voluntary contributions. And so pushing to have organizations like this be funded out of assessed UN contributions was extremely important. And I don't know that it's been emphasized enough just how important the establishment of the IIIM was because the Security Council was entirely foreclosed by the willingness of Russia to veto any consequences of any real import when it came to its client state, um, the Assad regime. And so in the face of this debility at the Security Council, we suddenly see the General Assembly stepping up and flexing its muscles and creating this very unique institution, a sort of proto-prosecutorial office, an analytical tool, a clearinghouse um, that's able to, to knit together civil society and law enforcement, um, and then also just be ready and for on into the future when cases are able to be brought. And so seeing the Gen General Assembly step up like that has been really interesting with strong multilateral support, cross-regional. It took a lot of states to establish this, and it was, I think, a real testament to the fact that people believed in the, in the imperative of justice and wanted to see things move forward, knowing that the Security Council was essentially foreclosed. And so I think the US can play a role in galvanizing and whipping up the votes mm -hmm. for things like this, ensuring that you have the support and the resources that you need to continue to operate. <laughs> 
So Mohammed, I want to turn back to you uh, because SJAC, of course, has a critical role to play. We heard about it from the vantage point Katrine had offered for, of the triple IM, but speak a little bit from the other side, uh, from the from the civil society documentation side uh, of this, um, in terms of. Uh, creating this sort of web of accountability. How do you view your organization's relationships with with IIIM and, and what works and what's challenging? Sure. Now, this is a very, very valid question because from the beginning when, when the resolution was put forward and voted forward, um, we realized I was one of the three people who were consulted in this among the organizations who worked on Syria. We had a meeting um, at the Qatari mission who was hosting a rotational meeting between member states. We had 43 ambassadors and everybody was frustrated with the veto we just got on, on Aleppo and what can we do? Aleppo is under bombardment. We cannot just sit and watch. And um, let's proceed with uh, Liechtenstein was, was leading in drafting the resolution for, for the IIIM. Um, but then c quickly this become a reality what nobody knows how it's going to end it up. Like, yeah, this is the first of its kind. Member states are encourage, they want to show Russia and China that you cannot actually sabotage the UN system altogether. So we're going to resorting to the, to the General Assembly. But how this will work with the civil society? Let's build off experience. Oh, there's no one. This is the first of its kind. Let's try to work together. So we worked clearly with, with the RCHR team at the beginning was in charge of, of, uh, of debating the mandate, working on the terms of references. And uh, Swiss and the Dutch governments both put resources to bring the civil society to the Lausanne meeting. A lot of efforts were put together in debating a protocol of cooperation. We pushed as much as we can, and the IIIM pushed back as much as they can because they want to protect their mm -hmm. confidentiality of their information, witnesses, uh, evidence. Mm -hmm. And we want to know everything, and we want to contribute to everything, and we want to participate in everything. We want to have a share in the decision-making process, etc. We kind of balance ended up in a good equilibrium system where everybody is um, confident of the work of the other people. We still point in the UN and think, oh, God, we don't know what you do. We don't know your cases, which is something, it's a valid questioning of like, hey, we need to know more about your work, but also from other point of views, like, yeah, you cannot share your evidence with everybody. You cannot tell the public the cases mm -hmm. because people are at large might escape from these from this prosecutions. So the, the relation has been going back and forth in a very good dynamic, let's say. At ASJAC, we provided IIIM to a live access to our servers. They sit with their team in Geneva and they access our data system, Bayanat, directly. Look what we did. They take our evidence. Uh, we shared regime documents with their intelligence analysis, translation, our cases, our briefs directly. And um, we've been pleased every couple of weeks we receive an email from IIIM saying, yeah, some of your evidence ended up being with a prosecutor in country X. So because part of the agreement, they should let NGOs know when they use their evidence, which is something mm. quite refreshing and, and encouraging that our effort is making its, its way up to, to prosecutors. And definitely we've been working with those authorities directly as well. Um, so the relation has been going back and forth really well. There's general um, expectations from the civil society and observations that, A, the cases of universal jurisdiction that worked much more um, publicly and stronger and faster and had more results, the cases that had the civil society clearly participated on, not only the IIIM. And this is another call to bring more civil society to these cases. The second question is, and I know we debated this to the Lusa platforms like endless times, that we want to know what cases you're developing. Even if you don't tell us this case about X and Z, we want to know the thematic area of cases, for example. And the victim-centered approach is really important because 
part of that discussion brought to the light some ideas that you should not do cases because there's, there's a good, a good trade-off. Well, let's do a case on uh, suspects who are in Europe or against the people we have evidence against. Hmm. But those cases might not be the most important for the Syrian people because if you prosecute some one person who was involved in barrel bombs, that will bring redress to thousands of Syrian families. But if you prosecute one person who was a prison guard in one detention facility, that not, might, might, might be a big impact. So from, from our side as an NGO or as a Syrian NGO, like we want cases that touches and, and, and the impact on the wider majority of Syrians, and that's, that's important. The second uh, or the third comment is the terrorism cases in need because we see imbalance of those cases and we continue to see those cases being pursued in Europe, rightly so. They have to put those people on, on trials. They have to put them uh, for the crimes they committed. And they're nationals of those countries. It's a national security issue for a lot of European nations, all those ISIS members coming back home. But we don't see prosecutors questioning them and asking them necessarily about the Syrian victims. We do not see mm -hmm. prosecutors in Europe questioning um, any ISIS fighter about detention facilities, execution orders, about detainees. The detainees, at least 8,000 Syrians melted when ISIS disappeared and got defeated mm -hmm. by, by the coalition. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where there are people. There's, of course, at least 28 mass graves were excavated by first respondents in northeast Syria. But nobody is pursuing those leads. Just recently, the US in August had a, a verdict against one of the ISIS Beatles, the two of four foreign nationals, British nationals, who were specialized in kidnapping foreign hostages. And they took four Americans, among other 13 hostages, executed the four of them, some of them in TV. Four, two of the four Beatles were killed in the US actions against ISIS, and two were captured by SDF, handed to Turkey, to UK, eventually extradited to the US with the promise of no death penalty because it's not applied in the UK. We ended up attending that trial, requested information through the Department of Justice, and to our surprise, we received that information from the DOJ. So we received answers from authorities in the US tell us about investigations we're conducting in Northeast Syria related to missing people, to detention facilities, to mass graves, and we just issued a study last week that we were able to locate seven detention facilities and three mass graves based on observing the trial, conducting interview with one of the Beatles who plead guilty and offered cooperation, and through information we ex like received from, from the Department of Justice. And this is something we wanna, we've been yelling and screaming and pulling our hair for the European prosecutors to do, and they are not doing that. But this is something could be endorsed by the IIIM because you work with them, you're an, you're an entity, definitely they will, they will be able to hear you more and this is unfortunate, really, because a lot of member states putting a lot of efforts and resources, they have genuine commitment to accountability, but then they do not mm. practice. The ministries of foreign affairs do not practice um, basically any uh, uh, oversight over their judiciary. It's an independent court system, and um, judges and prosecutors do what they can do according, according to law. So the relation with IIIM has been, has been going well. One area where we kind of saw that IIIM also can play a good role in, in the activities, and it's the missing persons, mm. which is an area um, I think um, it's part, not part of the mandate of the IIIM to be part of to, to be the mechanism searching for the missing people in Syria. Although in the last year or two years, uh, Catherine and Michelle Jarvis, the deputy head, they made clear remarks that they've been um, clearly uh, analyzing and tagging and, and kind of organizing the information related to missing persons could be helpful for missing persons. Mm -hmm. There's a current debate among Syrians and among member states about creating a dedicated missing persons 
mechanism or entity um, to, to search for those. Our, our, uh, the, the point here is that those, this information is not being shared with the Syrian civil society. It's being preserved with the IIIM only, and it's being shared by only entities that IIIM wish to share with, which is international entities, not Syrian entities. We think there's a missed opportunity here of this information. It's the same way we called prosecutors and say, share with us this information, and DOJ did. We demand that IIIM did that, does that for the missing persons mechanism. And for the record, we had, we had engaged UNITAD on this in Iraq because, because a lot of Iraqis get kidnapped and buried in Syria on ISIS days, and a lot of Syrians ended up being buried in, in Iraq. And we had a cooperation agreement with UNITAD where actually it's a both-way sharing. Mm -hmm. UNITAD is willing to share with us. We had the same agreement with the commission to, gather, uh, to investigate and gather evidence set up by the KRJ government in the, in the north of Iraq, also a two-way sharing agreement. It doesn't go two ways with the Syrian triple IM, but uh, this is something we'll continue to demand, Katri. <laughs> Shall I demand it on your behalf? Please do. Anyone, <laughs> Ambassador Van Sachs. No. So, uh, you know, we're going to turn to audience both here with us uh, in the auditorium, but also online, some of their questions and comments. Before we do that, Katrine, I do want to turn to you and, and sort of ask a little bit more on some of the issues that Muhammad has raised in terms of the ability of the triple IM to take on board uh, recommendations and suggestions from its civil society you know, uh, partners and, and how you're able to, to be responsive. And of course, this idea of the, a whole new uh, line of effort that's being devoted to the disappeared in Syria. The UN Secretary General recently called for a standalone mechanism to, to be established. What role would the IIIM play in coordination with that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> maybe talking first about how civil society can, can uh, how it can be inspired or guided, or uh, not sure what the correct word is, uh, in our work, well, that's really important. I mean, victims and survivors, and many of them are active in civil society organization like Mohammed himself, uh, they have the knowledge that we don't have about the Syrian situation. They can alert us, and that's why what, what you were saying earlier, Mohammed, is so important. That only arises if we're able to share enough of the substantive work we do uh, with them. And we are, I'm, I'm taking <laughs> the remark that it's not enough, uh, I understand that, but we are doing much more than we were at the beginning. We've disclosed. The areas in which we work, uh, we have the structural investigation that tries to capture um, the, the entirety of the Syrian situation, and obviously we can't progress on every front at the same time. So we dive deeper into strategic lines of inquiry concerning crimes and detention, concerning unlawful attacks, uh, be it uh, by use of uh, chemical weapons or uh, uh, conventional attacks against, for instance, hospitals or schools, etc. So these are specific areas. Daesh crimes, we look at a specific aspect of um, the crime that the group has committed. And in particular, we, we developed a brief to establish the existence of a systematic attack by Daesh members against the civilian population, including on the basis of discriminatory ground based on gender, um, religion, uh, political affiliation, sexual orientation, and other uh, discriminatory criteria. We're now starting work on uh, caps of the caliphate 
uh, aspect. And all of this is work we decide to develop based on two main uh, input, if you wish. Uh, input from uh, civil uh, survivors and, and victims that are expressing uh, their views as to areas which we need to, to identify. I mean, the unlawful attack and the detention were obvious, if you... Uh, if you read uh, analytical work that has been done by many entities, including the Commission of Inquiry, but it came back each time in, what, in our engagement with victims. Um, uh, crimes by Daesh, the same. Mm. But also, obviously, the needs, as I explained earlier, that we see national prosecutors having their own cases. So we're trying to make sure that we are identifying uh, work that would benefit both. In terms of the uh, situation of the missing, that's again another topic which we had the intuition, if you wish, because uh, many of us at the Tupperware have worked in other accountability uh, uh, entities mm -hmm. and we knew how useful the information collected for primarily for criminal purposes can be when you search for missing person. Mm -hmm. 25 years after the uh, end of the, trip, the, of the ICTY, for instance, for the former Yugoslavia, entities like the, the ICRC and, and uh, ICMP, for instance, still come to the archives to try to find relevant information. And the information in question wasn't ever tagged by the ICTY. It was, it's part of the archives, so you have to search, and it's complicated, it's not been meant for that. So we thought, we had the intuition at the beginning that if we were able to adopt a methodology that would enable us to tag as we analyze this material, we don't have the capacity to search every single piece in the central repository, but when we, our analysts review material for the sake of responding to a request for assistance or building an analytical block, Let's capture that, and let's indeed try to, to make use of it, uh, share it regularly, etc. Now, we had that debate. So. Five times. So. <laughs> Five times. I mean, my position has been we have limitation in this mandate, right? And we felt that we were closer to the heart of the mandate by uh, sharing with either international organization mandated for the search of the missing yeah. or entities uh, which, which can be considered as close as possible to international organization. Now, what I've noticed in the recommendation by the Secretary General advocating for recommending that an entity be created by the General Assembly is that the, the importance that civil society actors be part of that, be present, and, and I would say in that way could benefit also from the material in question. So what we, I've heard Mohammed touching on an important issue uh, it's absolutely correct that when you interview witnesses, they may be insiders, they may be uh, foreign fighters, they may be people who have been uh, uh, victims or, uh, or participated in the commission of the crime, there is a lot of information you could elicit from them mm. that could be helpful to support the search for missing. And I cannot speak for the prosecutors, although I take on board the issue of maybe being an amplifier of the need. At least at the AAAM, we've decided that when we interview ourselves, which we don't do on a massive scale, we do targeted interviews, but of course, we want to do that. We want to capture that dimension and be sure that we're not missing an opportunity of, a, of getting this kind of response. When you build a criminal case, you don't necessarily need it for the purpose of the case, but it's so important, and that's what we learned from engaging with victims and survivors. You know, when you have a, a mother, uh, uh, a child that is looking for their missing, I mean, this is the first thing they tell you. 
We like, we, yes, we want justice, but you know, the first form of justice is knowing what happened. Yeah, exactly. And they don't only need to have the, ans the ultimate answer. Of course, that's important too. But they also need to know what's going on, what steps you're taking, mm. what, what is being done to help us find the answers. So we feel we have a responsibility there, and certainly we're committed to, uh, to commit on, on that. And just to, if you, if you allow me to comment, as much as I wish I could let my uh, <laughs> fundraiser <laughs> at, at home, unfortunately, that's not the case. And uh, Beth was absolutely correct, getting on the on the regular budget of the United Nations was a great achievement, and it's really giving us a, a core amount of funding. The reality is that these lines of inquiry I described and the work to support jurisdiction, we wouldn't be able to proceed at the pace we do if I wasn't able to make use of voluntary contributions. So we, we have received generous uh, contributions from the US. We will be <laughs> again coming to member states to, and, and we, we are determined to make sure that we can um, proceed with the pace that is needing to, uh, as, I, as I say usually, not miss an opportunity for justice. They are not that scarce, they are not you know, overwhelming these opportunities, so we can't just miss such opportunities. We need to be able to seize each of them as they arise and even proactively to prepare for those which we all wish will come up at some stage. So I'd like to bring uh, our audience, both here and virtually, into the conversation. Jacob has a mic. For those here in the room, just raise your hand, and we'll recognize you. And then I think people can use on, who are online can use the chat box to ask their question. OK. So. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, I would just ask, please identify yourself before you ask your question. Thank you. Sure thing. Qutayba uh, Elbi, Atlantic Council. Um, thank you so much, of course, Mona, first for you know putting an amazing panel together. Um, my question is related to the um, proposed entity on forced disappearance and missing in Syria. Um, Mohammed, you mentioned uh, and Catherine as well the kind of like debate that is happening among Syrians and among international actors on the on this entity um, specifically, um, and the conversation is happening around accountability. So member states are saying uh, first. The victim groups are saying, we want information. This is why this entity is very important. We want to know if our um, relatives are alive or not, where they are, if they're dead, where their bodies are. Um, member states are saying, uh, mostly, you know, if this is just information, it's fine. If it's accountability, we, want to know. we don't want another IIIM. But on the other side, a lot of Syrian groups, or many Syrian groups, are worried about the accountability perspective, specifically when it comes, for example, to forensics. Um, what if this new entity basically gets forensics and then you lose the chain of evidence? Um, what about information sharing for, you know, for example, the other way with the IIIM? I know the IIIM is open to sharing um, information um, you know, for the missing, but what about the other way around? Um, where do you stand on this debate, specifically, Mohammed, as the Syrian actor on the, on the panel or the one who represents Syrian civil society? Why don't you each one one? Yeah, exactly. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Thanks, for the question. This is a very important question. Um, we clearly came public supporting the creation of the mechanism with a big caveat. Basically, we have some concerns about the way um, the mechanism is being presented by the Secretary General report. And we've been working with a lot of member states and hosting lots of conversations with several member states about our area of concern. Unlike IIIM, IIIM, the evidence are in Syria, you can gather them outside, and the jurisdiction is outside. 
for a missing persons mechanism, the prisoners are missing are inside Syria, and you cannot transfer those outside. So for a mechanism to be successful and meaningful in bringing information, either immediate release of prisoners or information about the missings and disappeared in Syria, it has to have some access to Syria and somehow. And if this mechanism is established through the General Assembly and Bashar al-Assad decide not to let them in, they will not be in. So our line of, of communication has been with member states simply that we need to have a solution. Before we create the mechanism, we have to create the political will that will allow this mechanism to succeed. And that political will is in the hands of multiple governments, including the US. Uh, that's pressure and incentive to the Syrian government to work with this mechanism. We have the Caesar Act. It's a very massive regime of sanctions, but it has, at the beginning, says this act is enacted for behavioral changes purposes, and here's the behaviors we want to change. The stop bombarding civilians, stop bombarding hospitals, stop bombardment of, uh, et cetera, and release of detainees. If release of detainees happened, would that mean Caesar Act could be suspended, relieved a little bit? I don't know, what's the twist here? that would allow Bashar al-Assad to be convinced this is something in his favor. Now, there's a couple of points here, and this is very problematic debate in the Syrian space, and I want to invite you and Mona to host a debate on this one because it's really, really important. Um, it's not happening, this debate. The family associations, rightly so, they want their loved ones. Yeah. You, you deal with the politics. We don't care. We're mothers, families, sons and daughters of, of missing people, and we want answers. And I grew up without my father for some part of my years when my father disappeared in the 90s. Right? We, know, we want answers. I don't care how you deal it. You do it through General Assembly, Secretary, uh, Security Council, EU, I don't care. But also from other point of view, we cannot ignore the fact that the recent amnesty happened in Syria in May was influenced by communication Bashar al-Assad had with the Emiratis. He went to Abu Dhabi. He was requesting a line of credit from the Emiratis for funding. And they told him, listen, this is not going to happen. There's sanctions. We're not going to give you easy do something so we can talk to you. And we spoke to a couple of member states, and I'm not going to name the state, but who told us the Emiratis got in touch with them and asked them to comment positively about the amnesty and about, about releasing or lifting some sanctions. And that member state felt cannot make that comment because the US has not commented. And the sanctions decision is in Washington, not in Europe. So there's lack of leadership, unfortunately, on this topic among member states. And that's killing me personally because I spoke to eight governments in the last month and a half. I was like, oh my god, this is almost close to be brokered in a way that could benefit everybody. And nobody wants to pick up the line on it and put their neck out for it. Okay? The Europeans will not speak about sanctions unless the US decide. The US doesn't have much policy and leadership on Syria, except the sanctions that they want to hide behind their fingers on this, because there's not even a special envoy appointed for Syria from the US administration. And we're, we're in this empty cycle of running around who will start and where. And eventually, some member states like, hey, maybe NGOs and families can start demanding publicly relief of sanctions and some suspension of sanctions so we don't feel embarrassed saying it as member states. Like, yeah, this is how it works. You call some families and ask them to say what the international community should do. And this is the definition of lack of leadership. And this is our problem. We're supportive of creating a mechanism because all these gaps I mentioned, prosecutors are not asking about the missings. Authorities are not sharing. There is no central repository. Needs to be put with some UN entity who will gain legitimacy and authority and calling all these authorities and collecting information. But I also worry this is a double-edged sword. If we establish this mechanism, we will not have a second opportunity on the missings. 
Anytime we will go knock doors and saying we need to do something on the missing. Okay, you have a UN mechanism. Go let it deal with it. Unless we do it right, I think we should be cautious of how we're doing it. And doing it right should involve creating a political will to the success of the <coughs> mechanism. The political will for the success of the mechanism is not there. And the political will to create the mechanism is not there. There's no member state willing to draft a resolution for it because it's somebody else's job. Syria is not in the items of the agenda, et cetera, et cetera. So this is unfortunate, sad reality, but also it needs to involve Syrians because Syrians need to speak out a little bit about their expectations from the sanctions. There's, of course, my understanding <coughs> the sanctions in the US. There's punitive sanctions where we want to punish those who committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. And there's behavioral change sanctions where we, in place, we placed uh, on, on Assad and his family and his businesses to force them to change course. And Let's see if they're going to change course and what can we do with them. And nobody is picking on this debate. Ambassador Von Scott, do you have a comment on this? Uh, it's, it's a really important proposal. And I think your question and the comments we've had so far reveal that there's a tension inherent to it between the accountability brief and the imperative of justice and accountability, and then the acute humanitarian question of just getting the people information as to what happened to their loved ones. And the way the Assad regime has managed these amnesties and others has been actually quite cruel, I think, to some families where they tell them their person is dead, they give them a death certificate of some sort, and then they release them and they drop them in the street somewhere and they have to find their way home and then they suddenly realize, wait, you've been alive all this time? And then vice versa. Mm -hmm. Your person is alive and then it turns out that they were dead. And so it's been done in this incredibly painful mm -hmm. Way And so there's only so much, I think, that documenters can do around revealing where the disappeared and detained are, because they may have, for example, files from a detention center that date from 2016. So at least on that date certain, we know that the person was here. Right. But, you know, how many years has passed? Have they been moved around? Have they been killed? Are they in a different center? Have they been released? Are they lost? Who knows where they are? Um, and so there's only so much that can be done by these people. It's really the Assad regime may be the only entity that actually knows where people are or where their, the bodies are buried, if that's in fact the case. And so coming up with a set of incentives to encourage Assad to participate in this entity is going to be difficult, especially if there's some pot potential overlap with the accountability work. Because, of course, he doesn't want to contribute to anything that would advance the the efforts about accountability against him or his henchmen. And so we're caught in a little bit of a double bind here, and I don't think we've really fully figured out how to, how to resolve that conundrum. Mm -hmm. Catherine, do you have any additional comments on this? Uh, maybe just to say that in an ideal world, um, the state where the crimes have been committed would cooperate, would be willing to establish the facts, and would be willing to find uh, uh, provide support to, to an giving answers to the family. We're not in an ideal world. So the way I see things is that, well, of course, we need to continue every effort to get accountability. You know, when I'm writing uh, to the mission of the, Rep the Syrian Arab Republic to ask for information, I don't get even an acknowledgement of any answer. I'm asking information, but including about crimes that the government itself has denounced. I don't get any response. I don't get even an appointment. I don't think that this kind of uh, refusal to engage to support accountability for any aspect of the Syrian situation should prevent from trying to get answers to the family. We're not in an ideal world, and I personally think that any uh, entity created to 
by the General Assembly or any other entity should have at its heart the mandate to engage with the government and work in a way and, and, and do everything that is possible to get that support because that's the only way you can go beyond just centralizing information mm -hmm. that may be here and there in the AAAM's holding elsewhere if you really want to move forward significantly there. So you need to create the conditions for that. That's why when I was asked at the beginning, could you be this entity? Of course not, because we know the reality is that we wouldn't, although we are acting impartially, we are not seen as such by the government, and therefore we uh, are not the right entity. But it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be an effort put there. Mm -hmm. And I, I strongly believe that every effort should be placed on each part. Today, it can work alongside without a lot of uh, crossing. You know, if one day uh, political will is there, including in Syria, mm -hmm. you can build bridges. But we're not there. We're, we're far from that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, for sure. Lauren, did we have, or, or Jacob, questions from uh, our online viewers or others here in the room? Either one. I know I have a question of, that I'd like to, to put actually to, to Ambassador Vanskak if, if while we're waiting. Um, <coughs> Sorry. Could you talk a bit, we've talked a lot about learning across different experiences. And again, you, you are, you've been here in, in another capacity to talk about accountability in Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about some of the learning that might be going in both directions, both from the experiences in Syria, as well as what's happening today in Ukraine, and how that could perhaps you know, elevate and, and, uh, and, and put forward both efforts at accountability? Well, we've already talked a little bit about Russia being an actor in both right. battle spaces, and we are seeing the same patterns and practices being used in Aleppo and elsewhere being used now in Syria, in, um, in Ukraine. And so that's a, a point of continuity, I think, between these two conflicts. Um, where the disjuncture happens is something that Catherine mentioned, which is that we have a willing and able national system in Ukraine. There's the Office of the Prosecutor General, and the US is supporting a project with the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group to provide expertise to work side by side with the Ukrainian counterparts to bring as many cases as they can do with respect to witnesses and evidence and individuals in their custody in Ukrainian courts. We also have the ICC, which is engaged because Ukraine was able to um, consent to jurisdiction. They haven't ratified the treaty, but they've essentially consented to ICC jurisdiction. So already we have two more avenues of accountability that we didn't have in the Syrian context. I think universal jurisdiction cases will also be important for the Ukraine matter, and we, we know that the Europeans are already very seized. They're opening structural investigations, which are sort of baseline investigations of a particular conflict. They're opening particular, more particularized cases. As I mentioned, they're very united. They're meeting regularly to share information. Eurojust has recently amended its regulations to allow it to be a kind of repository of evidence around Ukraine, so there will be a one-stop shop so that states can much more easily share this without having to go through mutual legal assistance treaties or other mechanisms that exist, but they're like a little more cumbersome. Some of the friction in the system is getting taken care of. And so that's, I think, some learning. So it's hard to compare the two situations because there's so much more, so many more outlets for accountability in the Ukraine matter. Now, we still have the same problem of custody over perpetrators, and that is gonna dog the international justice system wherever you go. If they remain in the states, 
that where they're acting, and if those states are outside of the system, we don't have an international police force that can go and arrest them. If they remain in those states, they're going to enjoy impunity. And so it's only if there's some sort of a political transformation within the states that are generating the main perpetrators that you're going to see more broad-based accountability. And so we're going to be left, I think, with these very episodic cases where somebody happens to travel, or they're suddenly persona non grata within their own system, and so they're ousted, or they decide they want to flee, they don't want to be a part of this anymore, and then they're found, and the decision is made to prosecute them rather than have them be a state's witness. And so these are that's a, a point of continuity, is that this, the problem of custody remains really acute in the system. Other questions? of our online okay. questions. Uh, one of the major challenges to documentation in Syria is the consecutive waves of displacement and the frequent mm. movements of victims mm. and witnesses, uh, which makes follow-up difficult. How has the IIIM worked to manage that challenge? Mm. And then a second question. Uh, some Syrian perpetrators may die before the establishment of a tribunal or before they're able to be brought to justice. Can IIIM documentation be used outside of a trial con context to support mm. victim compensation mechanisms? Katrine, why don't you take a stab at those and then please mm -hmm. others join in. Well, the, <clears throat> the displacement obviously makes things more complicated, but as, you, uh, as your audience may not necessarily uh, realize, we are not uh, able to uh, go to Syria. We don't have access to the Syrian territory. So our way of uh, documenting and, and regrouping the analytical, uh, the, the, the documentation, and analyzing it is by way of entering into contact with persons that are outside of Syria, as well as persons that are inside of Syria sometimes, but uh, that we are not meeting physically in Syria. So um, the displacement is part of the uh, acquisition, if you wish, uh, of the narrative of what happened to the to the persons who have been displaced. And that's the same as when you try to document what happened to a, a missing person. It's really about asking the right questions to uh, a person who are witnesses, uh, and also asking the same questions to uh, entities that have been doing uh, documentation, uh, documentation work. And when it comes to, uh, sorry, the second question was, can you just remind me quickly? Can AAAM collected documentation oh, used to support Yes. So we've said oh, our recipient, with the very exception of uh, what would be uh, uh, you know, an entity, an international entity mandated to search for the missing, uh, our recipient um, bodies, entities, if you wish, are um, courts. But I've interpreted the mandate to mean that we, of course, primarily support criminal accountability. Uh, before judicial uh, organs. We can also uh, support accountability uh, not of a criminal character. Uh, that would basically uh, arise from a civil case, for instance, as long as a recipient is a court, or that would arise from processes uh, that uh, Mohammed described, uh, such as the one which is currently at the negotiation phase, but may end up before the International Court of Justice uh, based on the allegation that uh, Syria violated its obligation under the Torture Convention. So again, these are processes which are not criminal in nature, which may allow to take into account uh, crimes or consequences of crimes uh, when perpetrators are no longer available or are not yet available, in fact. 
Yeah, I would just add, um, when we think about the field of transitional justice, it really contains a number of different principles or objectives. And one of them, of course, is always criminal accountability. But then there's a whole range of other ones, including restitution, rehabilitation of victims, including truth-telling, including mm -hmm. lustration, which is sort of preventing individuals who were associated with a prior regime from having important roles in the new regime, um, and then guarantees of non-repetition. So looking at issues of legal reform, institutional reform, security sector forces, et cetera. Now, in, in my book on Syria, I have a chapter that's called Transitional Justice Without Transition, yeah. because, of course, we don't have a political transition within Syria. And so there's only so much that can be done. And the expectation would be that if there was a new regime, that they would want to engage with the field of transitional justice to try and address some of these different um, goals of the field. And one of them would be a truth-telling goal. And so I think all of this documentation work is going to undergird <coughs> a sense of, of providing the truth of the causes and the consequences of the conflict, how it has impacted regular people, what happened to people, where they are. And I think this new imagined mechanism for the disappeared and the detained mm -hmm. is part of that truth-telling mm -hmm. impulse, to, that the right of people to know what happened to their loved ones, so they have that sense of closure, and they can move on with their lives to know what the fate was. And if they're still alive, they can continue then to advocate for their release. And so it's important, I think, to continue to invest in this work, even if the outlets of criminal accountability may seem narrow. There are all these other purposes that can be served by solid documentation, analysis, work with survivors, et cetera, that, that can be done by, the, by donors, by the multilateral systems, by other NGOs, et cetera. Hamad, do you have any thoughts to contribute on this topic? No, not really. Okay. That was my comment that transition justice would be, would be the, basically the documentation could be serving multi-purposes, not only criminal accountability. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actually, even if we had a tribunal in Syria, domestic or international or ICC, eventually that will put several cases, handful of cases, tens of cases, let's say, but you had a vast big population of victims and survivors, unfortunately and programming related to other pillars of transitional justice that are needed in Syria, including um, restitution, reparation, collective and individual reparation programs, but also the evidence could be put together in non-punitive necessarily, non-punitive programming like vetting illustration. Just fire the ones and the, who committed the crimes if you don't have enough evidence on them. Not debathification, but just, just <laughs> the ones who committed the crimes. and. Uh, so there's multi-use for, for such data, and definitely we designate our data and documentation and database in a way that could serve multi-purpose. Would you allow me one please. quick, quick, quick Absolutely, one? Absolutely, please. So just to, uh, I realize that listening to, to you, uh, Mohammed and you, but that um, uh, one caveat, which, which is not insurmountable, but would have to be addressed, is of course that we can share the information that we have consent to share. Mm. Right? So we can't just decide, okay, well, now we're going to open a new area and we wouldn't go back. So we would have to find ways to uh, make sure that uh, this is accept agreed upon by, by the sources. And sometimes the sources are no longer accessible, but I mean, I'm, I'm confident that there, there are ways to, uh, to address that, but that would have to be addressed. Just one more thing to add, I think a real challenge in the Syrian context, and you can speak to this as well, is the issue of property restitution. Mm -hmm. So millions of people have left Syria, and their property, much of it has been seized, and is probably being occupied now by insiders, you know, supporters of the regime. And so 
if there's going to be a genuine return of those refugee populations to Syria, there's going to have to be a process by which those property claims are going to get resolved. And I don't think this field of transitional justice has fully, it, it's sort of an under-theorized area of mm -hmm. the field, mm -hmm. and we don't have great models to rely upon as to how to resolve those competing claims. And so to have a genuine sense of return, of normalcy, et cetera, that's going to have to be resolved. And you know, the Syrian regime is going to have to take the lead on that, um, particularly because they've created a legal framework that has allowed some of this property to be taken. Well, I think we're coming toward the end of, of our time together. This has been a fascinating discussion. I mean, for me, it has elevated a few things. One is just it underscores the complexity and the difficulties that are inherent in the case of Syria. It truly is one of uh, an attempt to secure transitional justice in the absence of transition. Um, at the same time, the ways in which all of you bring uh, a passion uh, to this work and, and a, a wrangling with the difficult issues, I think, um, gives hope that we won't miss an opportunity to, to find justice or to secure justice where possible. I'm most, uh, I think I would like to take away from this most the, the concrete uh, suggestions each of you has provided as a way forward. There's some actionable stuff here in this discussion. And I think it's incumbent on all of us uh, to, to listen, to think, and to think through a way to, to carry it all forward. So please, everyone here in the auditorium, join me in thanking our excellent panel for what has been a terrific discussion on securing accountability for the Syrian people. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.